1: I'm Damian Bulwa, and you're listening to 5th and Mission. Twenty years ago, the terrorist attacks of September 11th changed everyone's lives. Nearly 3,000 people were killed, the U.S. entered damaging wars in far-off places that haven't been settled yet, and mass security and surveillance became the norm. For Muslims in the Bay Area and around the country, the cost of that day was immeasurable. They were profiled, their mosques and schools were infiltrated, They were pulled out of airport lines, they were tracked, arrested, and detained. But my guest today, Chronicle reporter Deepa Fernandez, has a slightly different story to tell. It's not one of victimhood, but rather one of resilience against oppression. Her story charts the paths of two Muslim women who came of age in the aftermath of 9-11, becoming part of a resistance movement protecting the rights of a community to practice their faiths and to live their lives. Deepa Fernandez, thanks for coming back.
2: Hey, Damien, thanks for having me.
1: So Deepa, this story starts with two women who were teenage girls at the time on that day that we all remember. Uh, What happened and, and how does this all begin? That's right.
2: They were young women. Um, Zahra Bilou was 17. Shirin Sanar wasn't quite a teenager. She was 24. But she was a, a law student. She'd just arrived at Stanford. She was a second year law student. She'd just gotten married. You know, life was really kind of beginning for both of them when the attacks happening you know, I think we all have our Remember Where We Were on 9-11 story if we were old enough to uh, be around then. And both, for both of them, their stories involve something that I think Damien really struck me was the realization pretty quickly because the attackers were linked to Islam that their lives were about to change. And I don't think either of them or, or really many in the Muslim community knew exactly what that meant, but they just knew that the big change was coming, you know, from from being targeted or scapegoated to having to turn around and defend or explain their religion for decades to come. You know, there was also really a story here that needed to be told about how folks came together and, and actually pulled together and and, and and created kind of community and solidarity amongst themselves to confront what was happening.
1: Tell us about Shireen Sanar. Who is she?
2: So she was a law student at Stanford. And on the day of the attacks, she and her husband kind of rushed off to a meeting in the South Bay of local Muslims in the community, community leaders, imams. And it was really a kind of a processing meeting of like what just happened. But what she told me that really stuck with me was that she realized you know, as this young, um, you know, kind of budding lawyer and someone who cared about civil rights, that there was no one in the room with a legal background. And so she came out of that meeting and immediately started connecting with other Muslim law students at Stanford. And so she connected with, you know, attorneys, Muslim attorneys, and they formed an association of Muslim attorneys. And, you know, they started tr- getting trained themselves in, you know, what, what how can we help the community and they started making flyers, and her phone number went out on a flyer. And she said, "You know, she just really recalls getting so many phone calls of individuals who said, uh, you know, essentially, um, my roommates
3: have disappeared, or my husband went out and I don't know where he is. Um, he has not come back in days, and I think he's been picked up, but I have nowhere. To, I have no idea where he is.' So it was that sort of thing that was occurring, and." our value at that point was really just in trying to connect people to groups that might be able to help them. Did you ever fear for yourself? I felt protected by being on campus at Stanford and being a U.S. citizen. And, you know, it's interesting, you realize what privilege you have in a situation when you see many who don't have those sorts of benefits. And, you know, there was a class element. There was um, a certainly citizenship mattered. And so, you know, although I had folks, you know, giving me looks on the street or occasionally shouting things, those experiences were relatively manageable compared to the types of things that others were experiencing.
1: And what was happening? I mean, in the Bay Area, across the nation, why was it so important to start building this, this legal defense.
2: If you think about it, from a law enforcement perspective, the nation had been attacked and they were really worried that there were more attacks coming. So what that manifested in was a targeting of certain people and in certain communities, both here in the Bay Area and across the nation, there were, there were arrests immediately. Um, law enforcement, the, the immigration, it was then called the INS, um, but also the FBI and local police, you know, were, were picking up men, Muslim men, Arab men, South Asian men. Um, we know now what a, what a wide scale that happened on, but we didn't know it at the time. But people felt it. I think if you can put yourself into the Muslim community at the time, they felt
1: that. And it became routine in that time for the FBI and other agencies to recruit informants and to put informants into mosques and schools. Uh, you know, what issues did this bring about? It seems like we're still dealing with the aftermath of this.
2: you know that rippled throughout. so there were informants um, put into mosques um you know which in in very in a very high profile case led to what um, attorneys at the time called a a false confession from one man in Lodi who was accused of being part of a terrorist sleeper cell. Um, But informants really, I think, served a purpose of putting people really on edge. It was a low-grade form of terror. Imagine going to your place of worship and not knowing if the new person who had come to worship was actually just a regular worshipper like you were. or was actually someone placed in there, planted by the FBI. And people knew of these things because in some cases they were outed. FBI surveillance included things like placing a GPS tracker on somebody's car, it wasn't just a one off that that happened. And, you know, people started finding these devices and wondering, why am I being surveilled? What did I do? It, I think what that meant for the community was no one ever really felt safe. You know, I referenced the case in Lodi. That was the the young man uh, through an informant who made what um, his attorney said was a false confession. And Sharin Sanar was called in at that point to lead a training or, or to at least just help men in the community understand what their rights were. Um, and this is this is what she was telling me that she recalled of that time.
3: So in the summer of 2005, news reports came out that an Al-Qaeda terrorist cell had been found in the small town of Lodi, California, in the Central Valley. And the news um, you know, made headlines. You had um, the then Attorney General, John Ashcroft, going on national TV and talking about how they had found this cell. And so that was my initial introduction to Lodi. It turned out um, that in the next few days, essentially the entire Pakistani community of Lodi um, was under suspicion. There were FBI vehicles parked on the streets outside people's homes. There was at one point a helicopter circling the Lodi Mosque and many, many people in the town were being questioned. Um, The two imams in the town were uh, detained on immigration charges, eventually deported. And two individuals in Lodi, a father and son, ended up being uh, charged um, with federal crimes. The son was charged with uh, material support to terrorism for allegedly
2: attending a terrorist training camp in Pakistan. So how did you come to be involved? Like, I'm guessing initially you're watching this maybe on the news?
3: So I was a civil rights lawyer at the time. I had just started, um, probably about a year earlier, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights in San Francisco. And my role involved responding to kind of continuing post-9-11 discrimination. So I was in touch with um, one of the key civil rights groups that was already on the ground in Lodi, which is the Council on American Islamic Relations in Sacramento. So I got a call about what was happening, um, but I never expected what I saw on the ground, which was this entire community under a microscope.
1: We'll be right back with more from Chronicle reporter Deepa Fernandez reflecting on the 20 years since 9-11. You can support Fifth Admission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bolwa, joined by Chronicle reporter Deepa Fernandez. Deepa, tell us about the second woman that you profile, Zahra Bilu, and what she's been doing in those 20 years since
2: 9-11. Well, the short answer is, Damien, she's been doing a lot. She's now the executive director of CARE, which is the Council of American Islamic Relations. She came from Southern California to Northern California to study law because she also thought that legal strategies were really one of the best ways to help her community through what was happening post 9/11 and so sh- she wasn't just a lawyer. Um, she realized pretty quickly you know the law had its limits in, in how much you could help people in the community, especially when national security was involved. when the government or law enforcement could cite national security f- for many of the ways in which they were interacting with and targeting the community, it made it really hard to like g- just get into court let alone win a case. Zahra Bilu spent a lot of time going around mosques. She did a lot of, you know, kind of grassroots community organizing and found that when you pray with people and when you share food with people, you build bonds with people. And I found that really powerful when she said that because I think when we think about movements that are built, you know, when you think of the civil rights movement or when you think of other movements that have made progress for their communities, and, and won one major victories. I'm not sure we really think about all the work that goes on behind the scenes. And and I think both of these women were women who did that. And Zahra Bilu, she also realized that in addition to taking cases to court, that it was also really important to do things like get media attention um, and to help people understand in the broader community what was happening to the Muslim community. So I, I think you know she and others really built Damien to this point where. You know, when Trump was elected in 2017, well, really even before his election, you know, many people just told me how that felt like almost like another wave of attacks on the Muslim Muslim community, just even in his campaigning in the lead up to it. Um, But this time, the Muslim community was in a whole different place to respond than they were in 9-11.
1: And what do you mean by that?
2: You know, in the days after Trump was elected, when he signed... Um, what was called the Muslim ban, when he said that people from seven predominantly Muslim countries could not enter the United States. You know, people descended on airports. And here in San Francisco, it was one of the biggest. you know, and and Zahra Bilu told me, you know it was, you know, as as overwhelming as that time was because it was it was scary and terrifying to think that, you know, the President of the country is now banning Muslims from coming into the country. It's equally as kind of comforting were her words and and also inspiring in some way when you get to the airport and you see the thousands of people who are not all Muslim, but are standing up there with signs supporting Muslims. And that, you know, that didn't happen in the days after 9-11. That's the progress that that she sees and takes heart from, you know, and 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 really, I think, wants to celebrate because it's it's progress that her community has made you know, really hard won progress.
1: Yeah, what I find so striking, Deepa, is something you write about. In all of these years, there's been sort of parallel efforts to get past some of these these fears and these suspicions and some of the worst echoes of 9-11. On one hand, the Muslim community in the Bay Area was doing things like meet the Muslim events and and getting out there and saying, hey, you know, get past your fears and, and making strides to you know, to, to bring the community together. On the other hand, you had these very serious legal fights and, and, and things that you write about like federal terrorism task forces and whether local authorities should be teaming up with them.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, in some ways, Bay Area Muslims, you know, did things that haven't happened in the rest of the country since, you know, they managed to stop local police from collaborating with federal authorities in, you know, the FBI has a task force called the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And after 9-11, there was many police departments um, were drawn on to be part of that. And what that really meant, quite simply, is that local police were deputized to function more using the FBI rules, which were really watered down after 9-11. So activists here in the community, including the women that I, I profiled in the story, but so many others as well, really gathered forces to firstly draw attention to what was happening, but then to say, it's not okay and we don't want it to happen. You know, and it seemed like a real long shot. Like, you know, how can you tell your local police department to stop collaborating with the federal government? But they did it. Um, and then that followed up a couple years later, and it just happened, you know, in 2020, last year in Oakland, that, that activists gathered forces again to tell the Oakland Police Department that it shouldn't be partnering with the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So I think, you know, those are not small victories. They're actually quite large victories um, that need to be understood in the context of how this movement built over the years just from those really small building blocks.
1: And Deepa, before we go, also... Hamid Hayat, the young man that you write about in lodi. he was he was freed. He's no longer in prison.
2: he was freed, you know, and and that was, I think fourteen years he spent in prison fourteen years where it held that there was a terrorist sleeper cell in Lodi. His sentence was overturned um and and that for him as an individual, obviously is a huge deal. I think, you know, when I looked at it, Damien, it was like, the community as well really suffered during that because it's it's a largely Pakistani community and all of a sudden they had a target on their backs because federal authorities called them something. And it took 14 years to be vindicated that they were not that, that they are not that. So, you know, it, it's 14 years, that's a long time, but they are vindicated. And, and I think the community holds that you know, very high because it's important to to have the truth come
1: out. Deepa, thank you. It's an incredible 20 years and you tell it so well through these two women. So thank you.
2: Thank you, Damien.
1: Thanks to my guest today, Deepa Fernandez. You can find her story and more Chronicle coverage of the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 on sfchronicle.com. Thanks to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode. And thank you for listening.